We have been studying in the book of Romans. This is one of the most interesting books in the entire Bible. Uh, it deals with two things. One is how to live for God and serve the Lord and how to worship. And the other is uh, why it's possible and how it's possible that we Gentiles who had no right to salvation, how it's possible that we can be saved. And uh, the reason for that it was that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, he was very interested in uh, the Jewish people understanding that these Gentiles had an equal right to be saved and that the Lord would grant unto them the eternal life and salvation and blessings and goodness upon the Gentiles equally as much as the Jews. There were some Jewish Christians. They were already believers in Christ. They themselves had been baptized in Jesus' name. In fact, all of the early church for 100 years baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, there was never a change on that. The change came later in 325 AD. But they, uh, all the early church baptized in Jesus' name, these were Jewish Christians. And, uh, but they had a problem. They felt like that all the Gentiles had to come by way of the law to be saved. In other words, if you get saved and you repent and you're baptized in Jesus' name, now come under the law. You've got to, uh, you know, you've got to go through all the uh, requirements, and they were called the works of the law. Paul refers to the call them called the works of the law. You've got to offer sacrifice. That how can you offer sacrifice when Jesus Christ was the supreme sacrifice? And uh, you have to make a visit to the temple, and you've got to do this and that. You've got to, you've got to keep circumcision in, 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 in your custom and in your way of life and so forth. All these things were given unto them by these, uh, by these Jewish uh, uh, Christians, so-called. A lot of them were just Pharisees who had been converted over into Christianity. So Paul had to deal with this. This is what the book of Romans was all about. Ephesians deals with that very much. And also the book of Galatians, they deal with this because many of those uh, Jewish Christians that were uh, anti-New uh, Testament, let me call it that, that they had, were beginning to persuade the Galatians. So Paul really had to work with the Galatians in order to keep that, them from going in that direction and thinking they've got to go and start living like the Jews under the Old Testament in order to be saved. So uh, what I'm going to do here today is recap some of these chapters so that we can see how they all fall in place and give you sort of a bird's eye view of this. And then I'm going to come down to some chapters at the end of my lesson here today. We have some very, very interesting uh, lessons in some of these chapters coming up here toward the middle and the latter part of Romans that's absolutely fasc fascinating. And I'm going to be talking to you about it. Let me start by, first of all, talking to you here about chapter one. This is the one that we've already looked at, and I know we're in about chapter six from this point. But let me just mention here, chapter one, what Paul talks about here is that God will judge all sin. And uh, he wanted those Jewish people to know, if you're a Jewish and you are of Abraham, it doesn't excuse you. You still must be, God will judge sin. If you commit sin, he will judge you. So. It says here in 118, I'm just reading this verse as sort of a key verse to this chapter. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So he deals with this in that very first chapter. In chapter 2, when he moves into chapter 2, he deals with this subject that 
the Jews who sin will be judged equally with the Gentiles who sin. In other words, if God will judge all, then the Jews are no exemption. And then he says here in 2 and 3 of Romans, these are just recap verses I'm reading to you. I'm going to read from 3 down through verse 6 here in chapter 2. He says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things? In other words, you're judging these Gentiles that are living in sin and doing sin. You judge them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Verse 4 or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? In other words, the same long suffering of God toward you has been toward the Gentiles. And then it goes on to say here in verse or five, four, or despisest thou the riches of his, I just read that, verse five, but after thy hardness and impotent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath. In other words, you, you create the wrath of God upon yourself thinking you can sin and get away with it because you're Jewish, but they are not. And therefore, God will judge them. He said, thou, uh, for after the hardness and the impotent heart to raise up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, God is going to deal with with these things. Praise the Lord. And then when we went into chapter 3, uh, Paul brings out that all have sinned. In other words, you, Gent you Jews are not exempt from sin. You still sin, and the world is full of sin. And he's pointing out that even though you say, I'm Abraham and I'm okay, and everybody's come by the way of the law, we've got to all come by way of the cross, and that's where he's going with all of this. You've got to all come by way of the cross, so all have sinned. He's building up his case here. Chapter 3 and verse 9, let me read this and move on. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So this is what he's pointing out. I don't care whether you are Jew or, or not a Jew or whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Everybody's under sin, and here's why we are. And he quotes scripture for that, verse 10. When I say scripture, he refers to Old Testament scripture here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then in verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Again, he's quoting scripture here from other places. Then down in verse 23, it's a confirmation to those two verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, backing up to verse 20, he gives us then the purpose of the law. If, in other words, if everybody is sinful and under Moses' law, they still were not saved totally and God had a plan that was beyond that plan for them to be saved, then what was the purpose of the law? Verse 20, and this is that chapter 3, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Okay, if nobody is justified in his sight by the deeds of the law, what is it for? And then he goes on to say in the last part of that 20th verse, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God has used the law to give us the knowledge of what is right and wrong so we can know what is right and wrong. And so he brings that, and this is brought out in Galatians and Ephesians as well about the Lord giving the law that we might understand what the law is. 
So he moves on and then into these areas. In, in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham because the Jews would say, we have Abraham to our father. We are the children of Abraham. God's made promises to Abraham. He's going to save us. We're going to be saved because we're the children of Abraham. So then he deals in chapter 4 with the subject of Abraham. I'll read a couple of verses here and then move on. Everybody still with me? I'm showing you here how that Paul was progressively tearing down all of the arguments that Jewish Christians had that they had something over the Gentiles who were Christians. And he goes on to say here in chapter 4 and verse 1, what shall we say then about that, about, what shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? And so in verse 13, I'm saving time by jumping on down through the scriptures and hitting key verses. Verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. In other words, Abraham was before the law. The law was given by Moses and it was uh, a few hundred years later uh, than Abraham was, 500, about 500 years later. It says he was that, let me read that 13th verse again. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he says down in verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Listen to this very closely now. Not to that only which is of the law, that is the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So what he is saying here that just like some people can say we have Abraham to our father through the natural way, we who are the children of faith and we have come to walk with God by faith, we are the children of Abraham because he is the father of faith. Do you understand what we're saying here? So this is brought out and this is also in some of the other uh, gospel. I have, I'm not taking time to go to some of the other epistles with this. But he talks about how that Abraham is the father of us all. So Abraham, praise the Lord, was given that position of being the father of the righteous because it would be the father of his natural people and also the father of the spiritual people. The Lord told Abraham one time, said, Abraham, look at all the sand of the seashore, name it. He said, I can't, Lord. He said, neither will you ever be able to name your, your seed or your children, your descendants. They will be as the sand of the seashore. But he said, look up in the heaven, look at the stars now, count the stars. He said, I can't, Lord, that's too numerous. So also, he said, will be your seed as the stars of the heavens. Now, you have two different elements here. You have the natural, and then you have the heavenly. So one is spiritual, and one is the natural. The Jews, Jewish people, the Jewish nation, are the seeds and the children of Abraham. And then the, the, uh, the stars represent we who are of faith. And so Abraham was, uh, Paul, rather, was sort of pointing that out about Abraham being of that kind of, that nature. The fifth chapter, I'm going to move on into the fifth chapter here. What he does, he deals with Abraham's position and that the Jews would say, we have Abraham to our father, but these Gentiles don't. Oh, yes, they do too, through faith, not through their natural uh, being children of Abraham, but through faith and being Abraham the father of faith, they are the children of faith. Now we go to then chapter five, we have access to God's grace through this faith. Yes, access to God's grace. I'm going to read this verse again here in 5, 2, 1 and 2, and I'll read 
I have read it to you, I think, last week, and I'll touch on it now this time. Therefore, being justified, this is 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace. Then he goes on to say, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have access to God's grace. Let me just say this, and I'm quoting here actually from Ephesians uh, chapter, chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, I'm not sure, but there's about two verses in there that point this out. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace. Grace is God's goodness to us. It's God's unearned favor, our unearned favor of God's grace to us. In other words, God is good to us. And folks, let me just say this. Sometimes when you're praying, just say, God, I just thank you for just being good to me, to my family, to my home, to my people. I pray, I thank God for my people. I mean, my grandparents and, you know, there was a preacher that came to the city of Pensacola when I was, a, when I was a, before I was born. And he started preaching the gospel under old tents. This happened all over the country back in the early part of the last century. And he just came there preaching the gospel. You know, I thank God for that man and his family. I told one of his sons not too long ago, I said, I pray and thank, have thanked God for your father and your family ever coming to Pensacola, even before I was ever born, you know, that my people may hear the gospel, that God would let it come our way. And uh, let me just say this, how, how wonderful God is to us that we can have that. But the grace of God came our way. Praise the Lord. God sent the anointing of the Lord upon those preachers. All of us can relate to that. I don't care where you're from. Some of you may be from right here. But some of you are from other places all over the nation. And somewhere there, the grace of God came your way. Praise the Lord. And that's God's goodness. Calvary. The shedding of his blood. Amen. His love. His convicting power. You know, you went to a church. And... You sit in the back and the presence of the Lord moved upon you. The presence of the Lord moved upon you. Who were you? Who were I? Who was I? Who were we? We were nothing. But the Lord just dealt with us because he loved us. That's the grace of God. And we are saved by grace. It's God that does it, not we. But faith is our response to that grace. It's like we're saying, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I'm out of here. I want to get out of here. No, it was like, no, no, thank you, Jesus, Lord. I love you. And next thing you know, we're shedding tears. And next thing you know, we're feeling a need to go to the altar. I don't care how macho you might be and how tough you might be. Boy, I tell you, the Spirit of God can just make you feel like a little boy. And, you, and some big, strong God said, I got to go to that altar and pray, you know. You know, I've, we've, we've had preachers and preach that preach the gospel who'd come out of hell's angels. They were mean as mean rascals, mean as a snake. And I'm telling you, God would save them and they'd fall in love with Jesus and be so tenderhearted and go out and preach the gospel and people spit at them. They wouldn't care. They were just saying, I'm so glad I'm saved. You don't know how mean I used to be, but God had given me the love and the grace of God inside of me that I may preach the gospel. Thank God for all that. There used to be an old song they used to sing I used to hear it up in the Midwest. 
along. He says uh, something about, uh, I went to church and uh, something got a hold of me. The guy said, I walked up the steps, I looked in the door. The devil said, don't you go in. But I said, it won't hurt me, I'll just step inside and, and sit as far back as I can. You know, and the guy goes inside and sits down. Then he starts seeing things happen. And then he says the preacher gets up and starts preaching and he points his finger and he looks right straight back as, at me and tells everybody just how mean I was. He goes on to describe all that. But he said, something got a hold of me. Praise the Lord. And so he, he just came out of the service, happened to see this church going on. How many times has that happened? If I asked for a show of hands, that'd be some of you, several of you, many of you who perhaps that would say, that's happened to me. I just thought I'd go and just see what's going on. But God got a hold of our hearts. Aren't you glad, praise the Lord? When I went to church and God got a hold of me and I went to the altar, I had no intentions of going to that altar. I knew it was Pentecostal. I knew what they believed. I knew, I knew how things were. I knew that there'd be convicting power there. I felt like I'd handle it okay. I wanted to hear the good singing see the pretty girls, I was 16 years old, you know, kid, you know how that goes. Uh, you know, you just go there, because Pentecostal girls are always the prettiest, believe me, believe me, yeah. And Pentecostal guys are always the nicest, they're the kind. Anyhow, we'd go to church, you know, and I'd go and sit down in the back, and I thought, well, when I had conviction, boy, that night, I just couldn't handle it, I couldn't handle it. I mean, it was like God was all over me, saying, you need to go down, you old sorry rascal, you need to repent and turn to God. And I finally gave in and did it, and I thank God to this day that the Lord did it. And you do too, praise the Lord. That is the grace of God. And our faith is our response to that grace. Praise the Lord, we respond to it. We would say, Lord, I believe it, I know this is it, this is what I need to do, this is for me. And and you, and you do it. I, was, I, was, I repented of my sins, not knowing it was in the Bible like that. I didn't know much about the Bible. I got baptized in Jesus' name, not knowing, praise the Lord, that the Bible said that. And, uh, and if somebody said, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. Oh, okay. And I knew that people lived holy because they looked holy, they act holy, they didn't swear and curse and go to bad places and they didn't dress weird and all that stuff. You know, they dress clean and wholesome. Ladies dress like ladies, men dress like men. You know what I'm talking about. And I knew that there was a, a hole in this fact, so I knew there were certain things that I would do if I became a Christian. Those things sort of lined up. But then I began to learn so much about the Word of God and how important it was just to live for God, serve God, walk with God, and believe in the Lord. And amen. And these things was my faith. You see, everything is faith. I, I, saw, I saw a brother, one of the brothers that got saved when I did, I saw him take his paycheck, take off some of the money, and stick it in an envelope, and lick it, and stick it on, and stick it in his wallet. When he got his paycheck, he did that, and I got my paycheck. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm paying tithes. I said, what's that? He said, that's 10% of your income. I, you give that to God. Oh, I said, you do? He said, yeah, you're supposed to do that. It's in the Bible. Really? Okay. So I got, I took out my 10% and everything, I put it aside. When I got an envelope, I put it in there. That's an act of faith. It was like, that's what you're supposed to do. And from that time on, I've been paying tithes. Amen. And God has never failed me. Amen. I've never missed a meal. I may have postponed a few, but never missed any, as one brother said. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank God for the grace of God. So we're saved by grace and that through faith. I'm going to read that 5-2 again. 
by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace. Hallelujah. Wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of his glory. Now, I'm going to move on here into chapter uh, 6 because uh, chapter 6 and 7 deals with the dispensation of grace that it, that it fulfills the law. Grace fulfills the law. The law was the commandments given by God to Moses for the children of Israel and grace, praise the Lord, is that New Testament. Uh, here's what he says at the very end of chapter 5 and verse 20 before I go into 6. Uh, he says here, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I'm going to say one word here, folks. I don't care how sinful things can get. The grace of God is always greater than anybody can be saved. You know, I'm just telling you that. So that when grace abounded, sin did much, I mean, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You say, well, people are getting more and more sinful, more, but so what? God's grace to save them is even stronger, is greater, is more powerful. And uh, that's something that we've got to always remember that God will match the sin of the age, the sin of the world with his wonderful grace that he will save those that will turn to him and be saved. God can save anybody. Amen. Thank God for that. I'm looking at chapter six now and I'm reading here the first few of uh, the first uh, four verses. Look at chapter six, verse four. We haven't been on these, verse, chap these verses yet. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, not continue in sin because grace can abound that way. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein if we're dead to sin? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And what he does here, he compares now the life of Christ, that he died on Calvary, that he was buried, and that he rose again to being what we should be spiritually. And here's how he ties all that together. Verse 4, therefore we are buried with him in baptism in, in, into, unto, into death. Let me just stop here and say this. Um, if I don't have the, you, the pastor taught on the tabernacle plan. I think he's got a series going on the tabernacle plan uh, that he's doing on Wednesday night. So I'm not going to go a whole lot into it. Only to say that in the tabernacle plan is the plan of salvation. That when God gave that to Israel as a natural church in the wilderness for them and later became the outline of the temple when God gave that to Israel in that layout is the plan for New Testament salvation now the Jews Josephus says this the Jews knew that the tabernacle plan had an extensive meaning beyond just their tabernacle and temple but they didn't know what it was and they tried to, they, they tried to, thought maybe it was something to do with the heavens and the layout of the heavens or whatever it was. They knew it was more than that. What it came to be, and Paul understood this fully, it was a layout of the New Testament plan of salvation. For instance, at the altar, brazen altar where they offered sacrifices was a type of repentance. We die, and I'm not going to go into detail on this because pastor's going to deal with all of this. I don't want to get into, into, into any of his messages. I think he's going to. It sounds like he was. But anyhow, the brazen altar is repentance because that's where we die out to sin. You come to the altar and you say, God, forgive me. And you say, I'm not going to live that way no more. And you die out to all that stuff back there. And then the labor of water is a type of baptism. 
And then you go into the body of Christ and inside the church, that is the tabernacle itself in the holy place, there is that candle of, 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 of a candle, seven golden candlesticks uh, that's, that's burning at night and they're snuffed out in the daytime. But it represents the light of God and represents the spirit of God. And then on the other side of the tabernacle was the table of showbread, which represents uh, the word of God. The bread represents the word. So you have the spirit and the word. This is the balance in the church. If we have the spirit of God and we have the word of God, praise the Lord, we have what we have in, in a balance in the, in the church. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is that these are things that we understand so that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was his death. That was like the brazen altar. Whenever he was buried, that's the type of our baptism. And then we arise from baptism, not to be the same old man that we were, but that we walk in a newness of life. And this is what Paul brings out here. Let me read these verses to you here. He says, verse 4, I'm reading 6-4 now in Romans. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, when you get out of, come out of baptism, you don't go back and live the old way that you used to live. You say, I'm, gonna, I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. I'm a new, this is a new life. This is a new way of living. I'm going to live now. And then it goes on to talk about this new way of living. Jump down to verse 10 uh, here to read 10 through 12. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. Jesus died once. But in that he lived, liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. So he's trying to say here that the even... The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sort of a, a pattern for us in our salvation. We repent of our sins. We're baptized in Jesus' name and we're filled with the Holy Ghost. All that's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's all laid out there in one little simple package that we can understand these things about the Lord. Uh, then jumping down to verse 22 in this uh, sixth chapter. It says, but now being made free from sin and being servants to God, ye have your fruits unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul is doing is bringing everything around to the New Testament plan of salvation. And that is that we ourselves, after we're saved, are to walk with God and to serve him and live for him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, everybody got your bonnet on? Hang on with me. You got your seats belt buckled? Okay, here we go. You're, we're going into chapter 7. Everybody with me? All right, chapter 7 here. I'm going to read where Paul then likens it unto a marriage. In other words, grace and the law, the law and then grace. He likes it unto a marriage here. Now listen very closely here. If you miss what I'm going to say, uh, you miss something important here. Look at 7.1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. And I'll explain to you in a minute what he was meaning by that. How that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. He's talking about now the law and grace. For the woman which hath an husband, he's talking about marriage now. 
the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, he is free, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress though she be married to another man. Now, this is not a lesson on marriage and divorce. Understand that. This is a marriage on law and grace. I'm going to read uh, verse 4 and then go back to these first three verses here. Look at verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So what he's doing, he's comparing law to grace, that we leave the law. The law has died. That's the old covenant or testament. We are now in the new covenant with God, the new testament. And that is that we are saved through Jesus Christ. What about these first three verses then here? You know, it says here, this is not a subject because when you go back under the law, and this is why he said, I speak to them that know the law. Because when you go back under the law, there were reasons and exceptions and there were rules that a person could get a divorce, you know. And even Jesus talked about it. He talked about it, you know, whether it's fornication and adultery and, and those things. And there is then, therefore, the right for there to be a divorce. I won't go any further into it, but if you really want to understand marriage and divorce, you don't go to the seventh chapter of Romans. You go to the seventh chapter of First Corinthians. Read sometime if you want to know about marriage and divorce. First, the seventh chapter of First Corinthians covers everything. And I'm not on that subject here today, so we're not going to get into it. I just want to say this. When you read this, don't try to establish this as a way of life. You say, Brother Myers, why are you telling us that? You know I know about it. Hey, when I was first saved and I was a young man, there were preachers that preached that if you was married and you got saved, you came in the church, you had to leave your husband and go back and marry the husband that you was married to before when you first married. Even though he might have been a rascal and a drunkard and a beater-upper and all that kind of stuff, you got to go back. Did you know there were preachers that preached that? Some of you know that. Some of you old-timers know that. Used to be a preacher out of, <laughs> used to be a preacher out of uh, Philadelphia, I think. He had a big congregation there, and he had churches all over the nation. And uh, anyhow, he preached that women could not, had to wear cotton stockings. I mean, he was strict, real strict. And he, he preached that if you, if you got saved, you had to go find the old, the old mate that you had and marry that and divorce the guy that you've been living with if you're a woman or a man and divorce the wife. You understand what I'm saying? It was a mess. But he was following this seventh chapter. This is not what this is all about. This is talking about marriage and divorce. So for all of you that are here, you're blessed to hear it. You're blessed to hear it. Praise the Lord. You never look at this seventh chapter of Romans and say, this is all about marriage and divorce. No way. No way. This is talking about there are exceptions to the rule. You know that. And under the law, you go back, there are all kinds of exceptions to those rules. Now, moving on here, I'm going to show you here that he was talking about uh, that the Lord said that whenever uh, the law died, then we move on into grace. And he mentioned that in chapter 4. Verse 7, look at verse 7 with me. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. In other words, this is a good part of it. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And then it goes on to say down in verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. In other words, he's justifying that the law was good. And I'm pointing out something to you here and I really want you to listen closely to what I'm going to show you here in the scriptures. Wherefore the law is holy, verse 12, and the commandments holy and just and good, verse 13, was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So what he's saying here is that the law helped us to understand how bad the sins were, how sinful it was. This is the purpose and this was the good that came out of the law. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture up here on the board. And uh, this is a, let's see how my, uh, let's see here. Let me see, is this thing on? Oh, there we go. Somebody help me with this. Somebody, this is not, it's not up and running like. Anybody? Anybody know how to operate this thing? And it's not, it's, it's sitting here, but it's not, it's not where I want it. I don't know. Zoom. I don't know, Matt. I don't know where it is. It's got, it's got a thousand buttons up here, and I don't know. I just hit that one, too. Yeah, just. Oh, is that it? Just come on up and help me here, Eric. God bless you. This man, one more smart dude. Is that it? Okay, there we go. You got it. Okay, thank you. Now, look at that little picture there. I want you to look at it real close. This is a picture of a boy out in the uh, backyard. His mother's standing on the back porch. And there's a little light on the back porch, and then there's a brighter light inside of the house. And he's been outside playing in the dirt. And she comes out on the back porch, and it's just getting dark. And she says to him, Junior, come inside. You got to take your bath. And he looks at his hands and his arms, and he says, Mama, I'm not dirty. Has anybody ever experienced that or seen that? When I was a boy, that's after, we didn't have sandboxes when I was a kid. We just played in the dirt, you know, and everything. And I've actually experienced this. You know, it'd be getting dark. Mom, my mother would come and say, okay, you got to come in. Now, my name's not Junior, but I'm calling him Junior. So you got to come in. And you said, you got to come in now. And I'd look at myself, and I wouldn't see why I needed a bath. You understand what I'm saying? Because I couldn't see my sins in the dark, my, my, my dirt in the dark. Now, whenever she calls him, she says, come up here in the light. So he walks up here on the porch, and the light from the porch shines on him. And he looks, and he says, my God, I am dirty. You know, not to the extent that he is dirty to the full extent, but to a part of the extent. I, I am dirty. 
And so that's what the law was. This back porch light is like the law of God that shined upon sin where men in darkness could not know their sins. The law revealed their sins. This is why Paul's talking about the importance of the law. It revealed the sin. But it didn't take care of the problem. It just revealed it. Says this is where you need to be. This is what you know where you are. But there was nothing to fully redeem them under the law. And this is what Paul is bringing out in this in these in this epistle here, is that the law did not redeem them. It just revealed the sin that was in them. so he goes on to say that. And so then the mother says to the little boy, all right, come on inside, Junior. When he goes inside, it's like stepping into grace. Now the light is bright. You really see your condition. And not only is there the full condition of your soul revealed, but also there is the bath. You understand what I'm saying? And he's going to take a bath now. He knows he needs it. He's ready to receive it. He knows that's something that's got to happen. And it's there for him to have. And so it is with us. We come into the, into the grace. We say, okay, I really need to know. I know now I really need to get saved. I need to walk with God. I need to know the Lord. And so what shall I do to be saved? Repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name. It's not the water that does it. You know that. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that's applied to our life through the baptism act, the act of baptism, that washes away our sin. That's why the preacher said to Paul when he got converted, Arise, be baptized, washing away your sins. Praise the Lord. And the Bible talks about our sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So anyhow, this is just a little illustration here, letting us sort of get an idea here how the law and grace, how the law served its purpose, but grace is a fulfillment of that. Now, I want to finish reading here to you in this eighth chapter. Look at chapter verse one again with me very quickly here. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law, for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ hath made me free from the law that is of the flesh. Praise the Lord. So where sin abound, it left us with this sin upon our lives. Now Paul deals with this condition of knowing that we have sin in our lives, but what do we do about it? Now, I want to back up to chapter 7, verse 19. Everybody looking at this verse with us? 19, uh, the verse in chapter 7. This is the perplexity of the law. He says here in, in uh, seven 19, I'm coming to a close here in a few minutes. For the good that I would, I do not but the evil which I would, that I do. He's talking about how the law shows what his condition is, but the law doesn't do anything about it. Now, if I do that, that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's talking about the sin in his body that the law reveals, but there's nothing I can do about it. I find in a law that when I would do good, this is verse 21, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. He's trying to say, the law tells me what I need to do. The law tells me what I, I'm talking about the law of, of the Old Testament. The law tells me what I, how I should live But in my body, I just can't 
quite measure up to that. Everybody following me? This is the perplexity of it all. And he goes on to say finally in verse 24 and 25, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, and I'm sort of caught in this situation. Until you get to chapter 8, uh, chapter uh, 8. And folks, chapter 8 is like the whole thing opens up like a flower. It's like you go from the minor key to a major key. It's like the sound, everything changes. He says here, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm, I'm just, I'm bound to this body of sin. I, there's no hope for me. And this is the way they felt under the law. If you read that again, that 15th chapter of Acts, where James and Peter talked about, you know, not having to keep the law for the Gentiles. And he gave that letter to Peter, to Paul. I read that to you last week and everything. He, he uses this phrase that neither we or our fathers could keep the law. We couldn't keep it. There has to be something more and there has to be something better. And there is. And it's in Jesus Christ and through his spirit. Now, let me read these last verses and I'm going to finish up here. Look at this verse eight again here. I'm going to read eight and one again too. Therefore, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Okay, the whole thing changes. It's like, it's like you go through a different door. It's like, uh, like I mentioned a while ago, the flower opens up. It's like you go from a minor key to a major key. Uh, now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Everybody with me on the spirit part? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. That is the spirit of that's the Holy Ghost. Look at verse three. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And that, verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, that righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This is why the spirit of God is so important in our lives. <coughs> now look at these next few verses. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. This is verse five. But they that are after the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. This is the natural man trying to be what God wants him to be without the Spirit of God to help him. Verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, but we ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So from here on, Paul starts talking about how important it is to have the Spirit of God just to be able to live for him and serve him and to keep the Word of God and to be what God would have us to be. Now, one other verse of Scripture I'm going to read is found in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Just, a, just three quick verses here where he talks about the importance of the Spirit of God in their lives. I'm reading here 2.7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. 
Verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. This is the hidden mystery. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 12, I'm saving time here, skipping down. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Of God. Verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why, folks, the Holy Ghost is essential. This is why we've got to have the Holy Ghost. We've got to have the Spirit of God. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then it talks about when they received the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, how they spoke it with other tongues. Acts, Acts chapter 10, the first Gentiles, they all spoke with tongues. The disciples of John, 19th chapter of the book of Acts, they received the Holy Ghost. When Paul came by and preached unto them, baptized in Jesus' name, they all received the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. I'm just trying to say it's not just a, a thing that we just sort of play with like a play toy. It is something that really happens in us. And God gives us his spirit, and that spirit will help us to live the life that God wants us to live. Now, next week, I'm going to continue on this chapter 8 into chapter 9. I've got some powerful Bible studies to give you. But this one coming up next week, you don't want to miss because it is one that is absolutely one of the most beautiful lessons in the entire New Testament. And I'm going to talk to you here about what the spirit of God has promised us, what it has promised us, and what we can have in him. I want us to stand together and just give God the praise and glory and thank him here today. You've been a great class, and I know I've covered these uh, almost abstract terms and conditions here sometimes, trying to put them all together and tie them together in the book of Romans. But it's a great book, and God has given us some wonderful, wonderful things about his word that I think uh, is a blessing to us all. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We magnify your name. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for truth. Thank you for holiness. Thank you for all the brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, God, for your kindness to us. Bless our morning services coming up next. We glorify you for all things and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.